before, uh, or God bless you as you give before the, the movie that we do in a couple of weeks, we're going to do a mini-series uh, on the subject of endangered species, endangered species, all right? Uh, you'll see on the, on the screen, uh, some of you probably know uh, what that is, who that is, you could say. Uh, that is the last male white rhino on the planet. Uh, his name was Sudan, I believe, and he passed away, uh, died, I think, two weeks ago or something. They had to put him down. Uh, I think at the age of 45 years uh, old, which they say is somewhat old for a white rhino. And it kind of captured the imagination of people and still does because of this whole, this whole uh, impending threat that we see all the time. And that is that there are species that are, that are endangered. Um, and uh, in my view, of all people, Christians and church folks should be the most concerned uh, about these kinds of things because we're stewards of the creation uh, that, that God gave to us. So that's a picture of a, of a guard actually trying to comfort uh, this white rhino before he died. There's another picture that'll come on the screen and you see that they kept him uh, under armed guard all the time because of the rhinos being poached. That's why there's no more of them uh, because they've been poached. And uh, there's two remaining white rhinos on the planet. They're both female. And so they're trying to, they, they took some of this white rhino's DNA uh, and they're going to try and find a way to perhaps artificially inseminate those other rhinos to preserve the species on the planet. So it's a story that's captivated uh, people around the world. Um, and without, without diminishing uh, this idea, uh, I, I want to put to your attention for the next couple of weeks another kind of endangered species. Uh, and that has to do with you and me, okay? That has to do with us, uh, the endangered species of humanity. You say, well, what do you mean? There's only, you know, 7 billion, 8 billion people on the planet. Doesn't look like we're too endangered. Uh, but I want to talk to you about, go ahead, go ahead with the next slide. Yeah, I want to talk to you about this type of endangered species, uh, particularly dealing with relationships. I'm going to talk about singles and married people and parents. There's no shortage of singles. There's no shortage of marrieds. There's no shortage of parents. What there's a great shortage of, however, and what's endangered now is healthy single people Healthy married people and healthy parents. And I'm not talking about physically healthy. I'm talking about spiritually and emotionally and relationally healthy. The amount of broken relationships, broken emotions, broken people, when you talk about singles and married people and parents, it's staggering. So if you're single and you're, you, know, you have a measure of emotional and spiritual health in your life, you're becoming more and more rare. If you're married and your marriage is, is joyful and healthy, you are becoming more and more rare. And if you're a parent and you're, you're actually good at it and your kids aren't you know, uh, shooting drugs somewhere and you know, out of control, you're becoming more and more rare. And the more this culture redefines what all these things mean, the more and more rare you will become. The people in that picture are very, very amusing. I don't know if you can see their faces. Maybe if there's someone in the hallway, you want to turn the light off just for a second so that they can see. You know, a lot of them don't look too happy. 
this looks like some sort of mass wedding uh, of some sort, but I guess it's a doctored picture. Uh, but they don't, they don't look too happy, many of them. You know, you got one guy, he's asleep waiting to get married, and his wife doesn't look like, I mean, she looks like, what in the world am I doing here? You know, you, they're all on their headphones, or half of them are. You got one couple that's smiling, but they're not even looking at each other. I mean, you just sort of look and you say, but that's kind of what's going on, folks. Uh, in the lives of single people and married people and parents, you've got a whole mess and you're becoming uh, an endangered species. So I'm going to start today by doing a message, attempting to do a message dedicated to single people. I have never in any church, to my memory, in, I don't know, 28 years, 29 years, I have never, to my memory, heard a sermon dedicated to single people. And I don't know why that is. I have a few suspicions as to why it is. Uh, it's, I think it's often that single people, even in the church world, are often looked at a little bit differently by people with kids uh, or people who are married. And it's sort of like, well, if you're single, you haven't really arrived yet. You haven't really experienced you know, life yet. You're not really you know, doing what the Bible says yet. So you're sort of a tier lower than everybody else. And there's this kind of this stigma that single people in church culture sort of feel, even though it's not really always said. This church is really interesting because a lot of the people in this church are married or are getting married or have been married or, you know, you got kids, you got grandkids. And so there aren't that many single people in here, but there's enough within the sound of my voice that this is going to impact you. And those of you who are married also, you're going to see that there's things that will impact you as well. Those of you who are divorced, remarried, what, you're going to see it's going to impact you as well. But I want to attempt to try and, and focus on uh, single people. If you go to the next slide there, David. So how you can be happy and, yes, single. Uh, not only is the church culture kind of put this pressure on single people, but the culture at large does, right? So, I mean, if you're, if you're single and you're not engaged in the, the hookup culture, you know, which is a culture of essentially you're having uh, uh, sexual relationships at random with people who you barely even know. There's no commitment. There's barely any communication. And so, you know, the culture is, is there's a hookup culture, but there isn't really even a relational culture anymore. My wife and I watched a, a documentary uh, the other day. People in the States made it. We can't get it here in Canada, unfortunately. But it was, it was stunning to watch because this was a documentary about the whole state of relationships in the United States, probably no different in Canada. And the, the hypothesis of this documentary was that people, single people, do not date anymore. They don't know how to. Uh, they're involved in the hookup culture, but they don't know how to date anymore. And there was actually a university class in a non-Christian school packed to overflowing, standing room only, where the project for the class was to go on a, on a series of dates with one person. These are university-educated students, and they know nothing 
about how to have a healthy, even dating relationship. They know all about the hookup culture, but they don't know about, okay, this is, this is how you treat a woman respectfully when you go out on a date. This is how you treat a man respectfully when you go out on a date. No, you're not allowed to do this, 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 or this. This is how you're going to do it. This is part of the class. Not a Christian class, not a Christian school, packed to overflowing. It was stunning and terrifying to watch because that's what our that's what our single people are growing up in. That's what our young people are growing up in. So how you can be happy and, yes, single. I'm going to give you three things today. Even if you're married, you're going to see it applies to you. Number one, find your completeness in Christ. So it just, just uh, here's a revelation for, for everyone, especially single people. If you are not, if you do not view yourself as a whole person or as a complete person, and then you go and get married and you think that your spouse is going to complete you, I, I got news for you, you're wrong. Your spouse is not going to complete you at all. You are still going to live with that sense of incompleteness, but now you dragged your spouse into the mess as well. And so they have to live with the fact that you feel uh, kind of as an incomplete person. So, you know, it's mythology. People think, oh, well, if I get married, then I'll be complete. No, you won't be complete. You may be complimented by your spouse. So the idea of, well, there's, your spouse has things about them that are not like you, and you complement one another. You, you sort of fit together like a, like a little jigsaw puzzle, like two pieces of a puzzle. You may be complimented by your spouse, but you will never, ever be completed by your spouse. So if you, as a single person, you live under this sort of cloud of, oh, I'm single, oh, I'm single, I'm not, I'm not complete, I'm not complete, and then you get married, you'll still be under the same cloud. Uh, but again, now you put somebody in your cloud, and they have to deal with your cloud. Find your completeness in Christ. God never designed life so that every single person on the face of the earth would have to get married. And that's how they would find completeness. This is not how God designed things. He designed things so that you could actually be complete and be a whole person and a healthy person and a happy person in who? In Christ, not necessarily in somebody else. So Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 12. Uh, For in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead or the deity dwells in bodily form. And you have been given fullness, completeness as it were, in Christ, in Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority. In him you were also circumcised, borrowing this image from the practice of the Old Testament, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done with the hands of men, but one done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. You have been given fullness, completeness in Christ. This is what God gives to us. This is the grace that God gives to us. And so you need to learn to find that whether you're married or single. And you can be completely fulfilled and completely joyful and completely happy without being married. How many married people agree with me? 
Oh boy, I've, I've got a lot of convincing to do. About, about four or five hands went up. Find your, your completeness in Christ. Let me try another passage with you and see if I can convince you. Uh, I think it's 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, there's, uh, this is Paul's letter. Uh, this actually would be the second letter to the Corinthians. The first one was lost somewhere. And this, this letter to the Corinthians has a little portion in it where he's trying to answer their, their questions. And we don't know what the questions were, but it's clear that they had a series of questions that had to do with relationships. And um, perhaps for that culture, which in the city of Corinth, a very hyper-sexualized culture, uh, you, had a, you had a temple uh, filled with, uh, well, prostitutes, and they were engaged in a whole worship system there. So it was a very immoral culture, very immoral city, perhaps not like unlike today. And, and maybe one of those questions was from, the, from the, maybe the single people, okay, what do we do now that we've embraced this Jesus and embraced Christ. What do we do with this? Is it okay for us to have relationships? Is it okay for us to get married? Like, what do we do? Is this a bad thing? Should we all be sort of monks in our terminology? Like, what should we do with this? Maybe that was one of the questions. We're not sure. But this is what Paul says, regardless of what the question may have been. Now, for the matters you wrote about, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. The first thing that he says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Wow. I mean, this is, this is the apostle Paul, the great rabbi teacher, you know, he says, you know something? It is good for a man not to marry. And this would apply uh, to women as well. He says, it's good. Now, and then he gets into a definition as to why people do get married, and we'll get into that next week when we talk to the married people. But the, it's, it's amazing that the first thing that he says is not to demean singlehood, which is what we tend to do today, but he applauds it. And he says, it is good for a person not to marry. And you see, as you read the chapter, he goes in and out of several different kinds of relationships, married, unmarried, divorced, and what to do in each circumstance. But he seems to weave in this idea that singlehood is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. Verses 32 to 35, for example, I would like you to be free from concern. How many of you married people know that when you got married, you got concerned? Okay, one person. <laughs> Maybe we should turn the lights on. I can't see their faces. I can't see if they're smiling or if they're frowning. Let, let me tell you, before I got married, I had no concerns. I mean, I could actually, before I got married, I could actually buy music. Every week, I could buy music. I could buy books, like, to read for entertainment and, you know, purposes for me. I could buy music. I could buy books. I could do it. I had no concerns. But when I got married, I got concerned, right? Because all of a sudden, you've got this person in your life, and you're sharing with this person. They're sharing with you. And Paul says, I'd like you to be free from those concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about what? About the Lord's affairs. 
So this is the idea again, find your completeness in who? In Christ. He's concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he may please the Lord. But a married man, he's concerned about the affairs of this world, not the bad affairs, okay, the good affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, right? And you married men, you know that. And his interests are what? They're divided. Um, and he, and he, he flips to the other side. An unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in, in, in both body and spirit. But a married woman... Uh, She's concerned about the affairs of this world, not the bad affairs, the good affairs, and how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good. Again, he's, he's elevating singlehood, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undevoted, uh, 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 undivided devotion to the Lord. So above all things, you've got to understand this myth, single people in the room, this myth that it's a bad thing, there's something wrong with you, blah, blah, blah. This is mythology. You, you have an opportunity that married people don't have, and regardless of whether you end up getting married or you don't, you've got to find your completeness in Christ. Let me throw a, a bombshell out to just get you thinking a little bit. It seems, I'm not entirely sure how to interpret the verse, but Jesus talked about that in the, in the future, in the eternal state, there won't be people given in marriage. You remember this verse? And he says, we'll be like the angels, like. He didn't say you'll be angels. He said you'll be like angels. There'll be no marriage. There'll be no people given in marriage. Say, wow, I wonder what that means. Does that mean that in heaven I won't be married? I won't know my spouse? I'm not sure. But the idea, what I'm trying to tell you is that your completeness cannot be found in somebody else unless that somebody else is Christ himself. First of all, find your completeness in Jesus himself. Number two, uh, don't lose your integrity. Keep your integrity. Single people, married people, but especially single people are under a tremendous amount of pressure, especially people who try to serve Jesus to throw their integrity out the window. Uh, what's integrity? Integrity is who are you when no one's looking? Are you the same when no one's looking as, when every, uh, as you are when everyone is looking? Are you two different people? Uh, is, is what happens behind closed doors the same as what happens out in the public? Do you have integrity? Or is there a lack of integrity? Is there a skeleton in your closet that you're hiding? Is there a, is there a secret life? Is there a, a break in your integrity, you see? It's amazing to me when, whenever you look, any, whenever there's any election now, and it seems to be at a fever pitch, everyone is looking for a breach in the integrity. We'll have to see how the president uh, down south deals with all of these, the recent, you know, uh, news, and it's all dealing with what? The, the, his integrity or perhaps lack of integrity. When you're single in particular, your integrity can be a very hard thing to hold because, again, you've got a culture that is preaching to you. I mean, it is screaming and yelling to single people 
that what you have to be involved again in this kind of hookup culture what's wrong with you how come you're not doing this how come you're not doing that and there's so much pressure i mean this culture just to put it bluntly is absolutely over the top obsessed worshiping uh, all of this kind of sexual experiences it's it's ridiculously uh, it, it's it's insane and this pressure is being put on single people and especially on young single people probably like never before in history and the, the the place that we live here in the province of Quebec is like one of the worst places in the world for this oh my word the pressure that's put on people Keep your integrity. A wonderful example out of the Old Testament that it, uh, involves a single person. At least he was single for a while. And uh, he was a man. He's one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. Whether you're male or female, you'll love this character. Uh, and his name was Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis? It, it's Joseph and his coat of... Not armor. That's Lord of the Rings. The coat of... Did anybody remember? He had a special coat that his dad made for him. Yeah, a coat of many, many colors. And he, you see him in the, in the beginning of the story in Genesis 37. You can read these chapters at home if you want. And you see that he's got many, many brothers, and he's the youngest. His, his father, Jacob, takes a shine to him because he had him in his old age. And this, this guy, Joseph, is 17 years old, and he's, he's a dreamer. Right, and he has uh, he, he he tells his dad, you know, if the if the other boys are misbehaving, so he's looked at as a bit of a tattletale by them. Uh, but he's a dreamer, and he has a couple of dreams, and he makes probably a big mistake, and he starts talking about them, and he says, "I had this dream," and it, really the two dreams mean that he's going to be in authority over all of his brothers and, and his mother and his father, and they don't like him. His brothers don't like him. As a result, they think he's very arrogant. Who do you think you are? All of this kind of thing. You've got this sibling rivalry that ha that's happening in this family, and uh, you, you see in, in chapter 37, uh, the, the, the circumstances... Uh, evolved to a point where the brothers conspire to get rid of Joseph, young Joseph, at the age of 17. And first they think, they say, we're going to kill him and throw his body into a well. And then one of them feels bad and says, well, let's, let's not do that. Let's just throw him into the well. And then after all is said and done, they throw him into the well, but they see some people, some Midianites. This is ancient, ancient culture back in the Middle East. They see some Midianites. They say, well, let's sell him. At least we can make some money. And so they sell him for, for a meager amount. I think it's 20 shekels or whatever, a really small amount of money, uh, even less than the amount of money that, that Jesus was sold out for by Judas, I think. So really small amount of money, and they sell him to the Midianites, and they're done with him, and they take his, his coat of many colors, and they kill an animal, and they dip the, the, the coat in all the blood, and they bring it back to his father, and they say, ah, oh, we're sorry, there was an accident, he got killed by an animal, and, you know, and they weave this whole tale. Do you know the story? Okay, some of you know it, some of you don't, but anyway, you can read about it. It's a really easy read, Genesis 37, and you keep reading. And so Joseph, he ends up in, of all places, Egypt, which is where these Midianites are headed, and uh, he, he ends up there. He ends up sold into slavery, and he ends up in an Egyptian ruler's household. And he's going to 
be a slave. He's going to work there and he's going to serve there. And uh, this, is his, this is his new life. So he goes from a pit to this, this place uh, as a slave, uh, but in a, in a, in a nice, nice house, nice wealthy house. And the one thing about Joseph that you see right off the bat, young, unmarried man, is that you see that he has integrity. And you see that this constant statement, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. And whatever happens to this, this boy who becomes a man in the whole story as you read the Genesis narrative, you see that the Lord is always with him. Whether he's in the, in the pit or he's in the, uh, the, the palace, uh, and you'll see in a few moments the prison, where, wherever he is, it says the Lord was with him. And the interesting thing that happens is wherever Joseph goes, whatever he's doing, the environment gets better around him. And, and there's, there's kind of prosperity and success in whatever milieu that he's, he's involved in. So, for example, he's in his Egyptian master's house and he sees that the Lord is with him. And he says, you know, it seems like there's something about you and, and your God is with you and he gives you success in everything you do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a promotion and I'm going to put you in charge of my house. You'll be the top, the, the top guy in my house. You run the house for me and I, I trust you because you, you, you have integrity. He puts him in charge of everything that he owns and the Lord does what? He blesses the house. So I guess that meant the house ran well. It doesn't say how he blessed it, but it, he blessed the household. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that, that, that his boss, his name was Potiphar, everything that he had, both in his house and his field, maybe his crops grew better, we're not sure. And he left Joseph in charge of everything he had. And with Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. I mean, this, this young man, young single man, he was so trustworthy, had so much integrity that this Egyptian ruler, Potiphar, he says, I, I can put my feet up. I completely trust you. You run the whole show. Joseph was a good-looking guy, we're told in the narrative, and, and uh, his wife, we don't know her, her name at this point, uh, his wife takes notice, and essentially, you've got the hookup culture happening, you know, 4,000 years ago. <laughs> so his wife, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, wants to be with, with young Joseph, and it's not to play checkers, all right? So um, she, she's rather insistent, and she actually says quite bluntly, come to bed with me. Very direct, very blunt. She wants to hook up with him. And, uh, you know, the boss is out of the house. Nobody's looking. Nobody's there. Nobody's going to know. He's young. He's single. He's powerful now, at least in the house. But it says he refused. He refused. With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he's entrusted to me, he says to her. No one in the house is greater than me. My master has withheld everything or, or nothing from me except one thing, you. And, and so he has not given me you uh, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing, he says, and sin against God? That's integrity. 
He's aware of the presence of God when no one is there except him and this woman who wants to drag him into immorality. And he will not do it because he has integrity. Single people, your integrity is being attacked like never, ever before. You need to be aware of the presence of God with you and not give it up and not throw it away. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, she's tempting him day after day, perhaps oblivious to his boss and her husband. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. I don't even want to be in the same room with you. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. He's all alone and she grabs him by his cloak. Okay, it's not his coat of many colors. That's gone. He's got a new cloak, an Egyptian cloak probably and she grabs him by his cloak and she says it again. Come to bed with me. Wow, very blunt, very direct. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. Smart guy. He realizes probably if I stay in this house and she's grabbing me, it's, it's not going to end well. I need to get out of here because I'm human just like the next guy. And he, he essentially runs for his life, gets out of there, runs out of the house, and she comes up with this plot, you see. And when she sees that he left his cloak uh, in her hand, uh, she called out to her servants who were out of the house somewhere, and she says, look, 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 this, this Hebrew, this Jewish young man has, brought, uh, has been brought to us to do what? To make sport of us. So he's the one who wanted to, to be with me, and he's been aggressive with me, and uh, this is what's been going on, and he came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed, and when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me, and he ran out of the house. So she didn't get what she wanted, so what did she do? She, she concocts a story, and she, she comes up with a way to frame him uh, uh, of sexual assault, as it were. And she, and she kept his cloak beside her until her husband, the boss, comes home. And then she told him the story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us uh, 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 came to me to make sport of me, she says. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. When his master heard the story that the wife told him, he says, uh, uh, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. So he believes the story. Joseph has integrity. He did what God would have him to do. And he's going to get in serious, serious trouble for it nonetheless. So the boss is burning with anger and Joseph's master takes him and throws him into the prison. And, and the, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Apparently he had a prison where he threw people who he didn't like or who committed crimes. But while Joseph was there in the prison. So he's gone from a pit to a palace as it were. And now he's in a prison, but he still has his integrity. He hasn't thrown it away. The Lord was with him. There's the statement again, even while he was in prison. And he showed him kindness, and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So another boss, the prison warden, is going to look at Joseph, young Joseph. We're not sure how old he is now. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a promotion. Just like his first boss did. He says, you know, there's something about you. You, you, you. you keep your life clean. You seem to know what you're doing. And so the warden put Joseph in charge 
of all those held in the prison. Here he gets another promotion, but even, the, even though he's in prison, he's made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So the integrity never left him. He's constantly aware God is watching. God is present with me all the time. And no matter if he's, if he's mistreated, if he's abused, if he's framed, if he's thrown into a pit, if he's in a palace, if he's in a prison, he's still doing well because God is with him. But nobody else is. He's still single. And he's in, you know, difficult situation, but he's still single. Sometime later, we see there's two other people thrown into the prison. You've got a cupbearer and a baker. And these people work for the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. You've got a, we don't know their names. We've got a guy who bears the cup for the pharaoh. So maybe he tastes the, he tastes what's going in the cup to make sure there's no poison in it. <laughs> no one wants to assassinate the pharaoh, perhaps. And we've got a baker. And this cupbearer and the baker did something to the boss. This boss would be Pharaoh himself. And he gets angry and he takes uh, these, these people, this chief uh, cupbearer, we're told, and chief baker, and he throws them into the prison. And it's the prison that Joseph happens to be, you know, kind of second in command next to the warden. You know, Joseph is in charge. So who knows? Maybe the, maybe the bread was bad. You know, maybe there was something in the cup. Who knows? But they're thrown into this prison, and uh, the captain of the guard assigns them to Joseph, who watches over them. So after they've been in custody for a little while, we're not sure how long, these two men, the cupbearer and the baker, they have a dream, each of them, the same night. And uh, it's very interesting dreams. And when they wake up, Joseph notices their, their faces are sullen. And he says, what's wrong with you? And they say, well, we had these dreams. And uh, Joseph said to them, well, uh, you know, you want these dreams interpreted, but the interpretation of these dreams belongs to God. Uh, but, but if God gives me the, the wisdom, I can interpret them for you. And so the chief cupbearer tells Joseph his dream, and the baker tells him his dream. And so Joseph interprets both dreams. Well, to the, to the, uh, uh, the cupbearer, the, the, the dream means that he will be taken out of the prison by the pharaoh. Good, something good's going to come. He'll be taken out. But the baker uh, <laughs> tells him the, the dream, and, and the baker's looking for a good, a good interpretation, good message from this dream. And Joseph says, well, it's not a good uh, interpretation of the dream. In fact, uh, you're going to lose your life and be impaled by the pharaoh. So bad news is coming to the baker. Good news is coming to the cupbearer. You, you read it. It's right there in Genesis chapter 40. And he tells them, and lo and behold, it all happens. Uh, but the cupbearer, Joseph tells him, he says, when you get out of this prison, don't forget me. You remember me because I'm still stuck here, right? I interpreted your dream for you. God gave me the wisdom to interpret it. It was a dream that was from God. And I interpreted it for you. Not all dreams are from God, by the way, just... Just, just telling you. And so I've interpreted your dream, but you don't forget me when you get out of this prison. Well, lo and behold, that didn't happen. The cupbearer, who did not have integrity, forgot about Joseph and left Joseph languishing there in the prison. The next two full years had passed. 
So we're not sure how many years Joseph had been in this prison. The, the, the baker lost his life. The cupbearer was released. Joseph is all alone, still has his integrity. He still has God with him. Two full years had passed. Pharaoh himself has a dream. It's some kind of intense dream. And he sees these, these uh, seven uh, uh, cows that are, you know, they're very, very well fed and they're grazing in the field. And then he sees seven really like emaciated kind of zombie cows. And those zombie cows eat up the good cows. And, and it's a disturbing dream. To, to Pharaoh, and he wants to know, does this dream mean anything? And, and he, you know, of course, he's looking for people who, who can interpret this dream and so on. And lo and behold, the cupbearer, who didn't have integrity, remembers to himself, ah, there's a guy in the prison. Uh, today, I am reminded of my shortcomings, he says, his lack of integrity for all intents and purposes. Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the, in the house and the captain of the guard. Remember a couple of years ago when you did that? And uh, each of us had this dream on the same night, and there was a man in there who could interpret dreams, and he got it right. And uh, so Pharaoh says, bring him here, because I want him to interpret this, this intense dream that I have had. And so Joseph, again, says the same thing. Well, you know, I can't do it, but if God gives me the ability to do it, the interpretation belongs to God, so he tells him the dream. And Joseph says, let me tell you, listen very, very carefully, Mr. Pharaoh, as to what this dream means. There is going to be years of harvest that are going to come. There's going to be years of bountiful, bountiful harvest. But then there's going to be years of intense, terrible, horrible famine. And you need to, to prepare yourself for what is going to come because it's going to come quickly. I'm telling you this is what it means. Pharaoh uh, listens to him, and Joseph even gives him a solution. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to find somebody who will store up some grain, happens to be a fifth of the, of the grain, 20%. Store up 20% of it that comes in in the years of harvest. And you store that up and you organize it, and then you'll be able, that your, your nation will survive the intense famine that is to come. And so the plan, as he listens to Joseph speak, and he hears, wow, this, is, uh, this makes real sense. I think that what he says is true and what is going to come to pass. He says, can we find anyone like this man who can interpret these dreams and has this solution to this terrible problem in whom is the spirit of God, he says, or in his language, probably the spirit of the gods. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, since, since your God has made all this known to you, since no one is discerning and as wise as you, guess what he does? Puts him in charge. So he's in charge when he's in Potiphar's house. He's in charge when he's in the prison. And now he's in charge of the nation of Egypt. He puts him in charge. And he says, you're the man with the answer. Your God has made all this known to you. There's no one as discerning as wise as you. You shall be in charge of all my palace. All my people are to submit to your orders. The only uh, with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Amazing. Why does it happen to this, this young man? 
single man because he kept his integrity all the way through life's ups and life's downs. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He puts a ring on his finger. He gives him royal clothing. And ah, his single days are over. Because he gives him a wife. Gives him an Egyptian uh, bride. He has two children, at least with her, in the years of plenty. Be careful, you single people. If you live with integrity, you might end up getting married. <laughs> Because unmarried people, when they see other unmarried people and they want to get married, they look for people who have integrity. They look and they watch. So he ends up, he ends up married after all. And you see the rest of the story. You can read it in the balance of the book of Genesis, how he ends up saving the whole nation of Egypt and even his family, even his, his estranged brothers, even his father who had mourned for him. They all come back and there's this tremendous reunion. And the conclusion of the matter is you intended to harm me. My family, my brothers intended to harm me. But God, God in his sovereign wisdom, intended the whole thing for good. He was a man of integrity, a man who kept it when he was single and a man who kept it when he was married. He knew that God was with him. Single people, listen to me. When you're alone, when you're tempted, God is with you. He is watching and he wants you to be just like Joseph. And he will reward you for it. If it is your desire to get married, you hold on to your integrity and you just watch what God will do in your life. Uh, keep your integrity. And number three, do not compromise. Do not compromise. No matter what you do, do not compromise, all right? And this, again, from the Old Testament, this is from the book of Daniel, a man who was single all of his life probably much to the chagrin of many of the women who saw him. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. The book of Daniel is just such an amazing... I wish somebody would make a movie of the whole book and use, you know, all the cool special effects that they have today. It's an amazing, amazing story. And it just in, in four chapters that I'll do in about five minutes, seven minutes maybe, you see that there's areas of, of his life and the life... Uh, the lives of his friends, that they refused to compromise in. They would not give up. They would not give way. They held on to these things. In chapter 1 of Daniel, you see very, very uh, quickly, I'll summarize it, you see that, uh, that Judah and Jerusalem are sacked and burned by the Babylonians. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and God would have allowed this whole thing to happen. And they, 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 they take the loot from the temple. They take all the sacred articles from the temple. And they also take many people captive from Jerusalem, bring them to Babylon. And uh, some of them are mentioned in this book of Daniel. And uh, we know of four. We know of Daniel. We know of his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know them probably more as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, much, I, I once met a person named Shadrach. There's a great, great preacher. S.M. Lockridge is his name. Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. 
Uh, if you if you want to you want to see something on the internet, you look up the sermon by S. M. Lockridge, amazing African American preacher. It will blow you to smithereens to listen to this man preach. Anyway, it's an aside. So you see that these people are taken into into Babylonian captivity, and these are the four the four young men: Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the king Nebuchadnezzar wants to essentially turn them into good Babylonians. So he says, you bring me the cream of the crop of Judah. You bring me the smartest uh, young men of the, of the lot. You bring me the cream of the crop. We're going to re-educate these people. We're going to train them in the ways of the Babylonians. We're going to give them Babylonian names after our gods. We're going to totally turn them around and turn them into wonderful soldiers and leaders and whatnot for Babylon. And these are the three men, the young men who were taken uh, into the king's service. First thing that they want to do is they want to change their diet. These Hebrew young men and their kosher diet. And so they put this food before them, this royal food and wine. And uh, the problem is that these, this, these three, uh, four young men led by Daniel do not, do not, do not want to compromise. And in their view, back then, this is the Old Testament law. This is a kosher dietary laws. And they're saying, You're, you want us to break the law of God. And we are not going to do that. We, we do not want to eat this food. And Daniel makes a deal with the leader there. And he says, listen, give us nothing but, but vegetables and, uh, and water. We don't want this meat. We don't want this wine. And watch us for 10 days. And if we don't look better than everybody else after 10 days, then okay, we'll do something about it. But you, you watch us. And so they work a kind of a backroom deal. And uh, lo and behold, 10 days later, they look better than everybody else. Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they look better than everybody else. They say, well, let them eat what they want to eat. But you see, it's a, it's a great lesson. They would not compromise their worldview that was filtered through the pages of the Bible. They said, no, you are asking us to break a command of Scripture. And again, this Old Testament law, dietary law. They were, but in, the, in, in context, to them, it would be like violating one of, the, one of the Ten Commandments to us. And they know we're not going to do it. Single people, do not compromise your worldview that is filtered through the pages of the Bible. You are being bombarded with information that is so counter to what is being taught in this book. It is completely opposed. It is completely counter to what is being taught here. It's not just a little bit opposed. It is completely opposed. Do not, do not compromise your worldview. You will be challenged like never before in the days ahead to compromise the things that you believe and to throw them away. You'll be tempted to compromise, say, well, you know, I'm single and I want to get married and there's no one around and so I'll go and I'll go with this, with this guy. I mean, he's a nice guy. I've noticed it's the women who do it more than the men, the Christian women in the churches. This I notice. Uh, and, well, he's a nice guy. You know, he's somewhat good looking. He drives a nice car. He has a good job. He's really interested in me, blah, blah, blah. There's no Christian men anywhere. And the Christian men that I know, they're all kind of messed up. So, you know, this guy at the office and, the, you know, and I'm getting older and I'm single and la, 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 la. And so I'll go with him, you know, like, you know what that's called? Compromise. 
That's what it's called, compromise. When you take a Christian and a non-Christian, you put them together and you try and get them married, you've got a marriage of light and darkness coming together. You've got a marriage of shadows that's going to happen there. Usually what happens, usually, not all the time, is that the Christian gives up their faith for the other person. Well, don't need to go to church. Well, well, well. And then, you know, things change. Everything changes. Are you a Christian still? Yeah. Do you ever go to church? No. you ever read the Bible? No. You ever have fellowship with believers? No. You ever talk about God to your kids? No. You're still a Christian, right? So compromise for the sake of, well, I need to get married. Do not compromise. Don't compromise. You'll be happier, single, and not compromised than married and compromised. And at the end of your compromised life, you'll say, ah, it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be anyway. I gave up so much so that I could get this ring on my finger. And this guy who's, well, you know, 40 years later, he's a bit of a pain. Don't compromise. Uh, you skip over to, to, Jan, uh, sorry, to Daniel chapter 3. And there you see another great example of people who wouldn't compromise. And here you've got the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he makes this huge, huge statue dedicated to himself, this huge, huge, enormous, enormous statue. And he's got a whole thing devised there. He's got all these musicians. And it's this huge public event where he's dedicating his statue to himself. And, and so the way that it works is as soon as all the instruments play and as soon as the horn, the proverbial horn is blown, everybody has to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar and worship Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know where Daniel is at the time, uh, but the three Hebrew boys known now as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, uh-uh, we're not going to bow down. We're not bowing down to no statue because we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't worship Nebuchadnezzar. We don't worship other gods. And we are not going to do it. And everybody else bows down, but they do not. And the king is enraged. And he says, heat up the furnace. And heat it up hotter than you've ever heated up the furnace before. It's gigantic inferno of a furnace. Perhaps used to make his own statue. Who knows? And he says, heat it up and heat it up hotter than it's ever been heated before. It's so hot that some of his guards die in the fire. He says, you take these three young boys who think that they won't worship me and you throw them into that fire. So that everybody will know that when I blow the horn, you bow down and you worship me. Because I am God. There's none I'm the one. And so he takes the, the he ends up throwing the three boys in the fire, and they, they say to, they say, our God will deliver us, but even if he does not, O king, we want you to know that we will not worship you, we will worship our God, and that's it. We will not compromise, even if he does not save us. Wow, amazing, amazing lack of compromise on their part. Single, single. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and you know the story. The king is looking, and he's saying, excuse me, I thought you threw them into the furnace. How come they're not dying? How come they're not dead? And who's the fourth guy who I see there? One who looks like uh, the son of the gods. What is going on? And he realizes that their God is with them, and he's in shock, and he says, okay, everybody has to worship the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego now, and he seems to have a kind of, uh, of repentance of sorts. I don't really think it's genuine at that point, but you see that he's in shock because their God 
delivered them. Even though they would have lived without it, even though they say, even if he does not, we will not worship you. We will not worship your image. We will not. We will only worship our God. And yet you see the fourth man in the fiery furnace who many scholars believe is the pre-incarnate Christ who is there in the fiery furnace uh, with these boys. You skip over to Daniel chapter 5. You see there's a new king in town. It's the son of Nebuchadnezzar. His name is Belshazzar. And he decides to throw a big party. And he's going to use the articles from the temple in Jerusalem that his father took when they took the people captive. He says, let's have a big party. Let's have everyone drink out of these goblets, these, these articles of the temple. Everybody drink out of them, and let's all worship the gods of wood and stone and, and so on. And suddenly, there's, these, there's this hand that appears, this supernatural thing. This hand appears and writes on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, peres, is the, the phrase in, in their language. And when they all see this, they're all shocked. And the king is, it says his, his face turned pale and he was frightened and his knees knocked together and his legs gave way when he saw it, this hand that writes these words on the wall. And of course, they call everybody and they say, someone's got to figure out what this means and they've got to interpret what this means and nobody knows. And they say, ah, 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 there's a man named Daniel a man who can interpret dreams, a man who has interpreted dreams. We need to bring him here. He worked for your father, Nebuchadnezzar. He can solve difficult problems. He can explain. He can, he can interpret dreams. Bring him here. He's from Judah. And so the king brings him, and he says, okay, I understand that the spirit of the gods is in you, that you have intelligence, you have wisdom. They brought everybody before me. Nobody can explain what it means, but I've heard you can do this. If you do this, I'm going to give you a, a, a gold chain. I'm going to have you clothed in purple linen. You'll be the highest, third highest ruler in the kingdom if you can do this. And watch what Daniel does. He says, you may keep your gifts for yourself. And give your rewards for, to somebody else. I don't want your money. I don't want your power. I don't want any of it. But I will read the writing and I will tell the king what it means. He would not compromise the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God gave to him. He would not. He would not give them away for money. He would not do it the way that that king wanted. He said, no, they're the gifts of God that God has given to me. And they operate the way that God wants them to operate, not the way that you do. Single people and, and even beyond, the gifts that God has given to you, he wants you to use for his purposes. Don't throw them away if you're single <laughs> because you're single. Say, well, God can't use me. God can't use my gifts. Not according to Paul. According to Paul, he can use your gifts probably more than the married person. Because you have more time. Because you're not divided between two things like a spouse and God. You can use those gifts perhaps in a greater way. Don't compromise them. Don't give them up. And we see that he interprets the, the vision all right. He interprets the handwriting on the wall. And the handwriting on the wall says, Belshazzar, you're about to be deposed. The Medo-Persians are coming. And that night it happens and he's deposed. Bye-bye, you have been found on the scales and have been found wanting. You 
have compromised. You have lacked integrity, O king, and you are the one who God is going to bring down now. And you see it happen in chapter 5. And then finally in chapter 6, you see Daniel, another great example. And Daniel here... Uh, is an older he, he's an older man most most probably and you see another new king Darius and Darius has got a whole leadership structure and Daniel is very very distinguished he's he's venerated amongst the people he's higher than these than this structure that Darius has put together he's an exceptional uh, leader the king planned to to promote him put him in charge of the whole kingdom and of course they're jealous all this leader, leadership structure, the administrators, the satraps, and so on. And they say, we need to get rid of this guy. We're jealous of him. We don't like him. And so they say, well, we've got to find a way. And they can't find any way. They say he's impeccable in his character. There's no way that we, we can't find any breach. We can't find any compromise. We can't find any break in his integrity. He's trustworthy. He's intelligent. He's, well, we don't have any charges that we can levy against him to get him out of, out of our way. Uh, even though we hate him. But if it's something to do with the law of his God, if it has to do with his religion, if it has to do with the practice of his religion, on this we can get him because we know he worships that God there, the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. And they say, King Darius, there's a problem in your kingdom. There's a guy who prays to a different God. And it's issue a decree that and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or man in the in the next thirty days, except to you, Darius, if they're worshiping anybody else, then decree it that you will throw them into the den filled with the lions. And so you decree that. And Darius says, "Uh huh, I'm the man. I'm the god. No one's going to worship anyone but me. Where do I sign?" And so he signs and he puts his, his seal in it. He says, sure, I have no problem with that whatsoever. And then they, they catch Daniel in the act. They go over to his house. They see he's facing the land of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and he's praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, they catch him in the act of prayer. They say, ah, we've got him, king. You need to throw him into the lion's den now. We've got him and we've got you, don't we? And the king, he's, oh, no, this is Daniel. This is the guy who I was going to promote. This is the guy who has his great reputation. And he feels terrible, but he knows he has to do what he says. He's Darius. If he breaks it, he's in huge trouble. It's, it's impossible for him to break the edict that he made. And he just, he hopes that somehow Daniel's going to survive in the lion's den. And he throws him into the den and, and he closes the lid as it were. He's, oh, Daniel, I hope you're okay. And you know the story, right? He comes back and he sees Daniel's fine. He's all cuddled up with the lions, in fact. They, they don't, they don't want to eat him. They don't want to hurt him. They leave him alone. I don't know if you've ever been around big lions, but it's pretty intimidating. And there's Daniel in there with the who, who knows how many lions? They don't eat him. They don't kill him. They don't devour him. Nothing. And of course, you know, the king is furious. He says, all these people who conspired against Daniel, you throw them into the den of lions. And the tables turn on them because they compromise, because they lack integrity, because of all those things. Single people, your, your worldview based on the scripture, uh, 
your worship of God and God alone, the gifts of the Spirit that God has given to you, and prayer. Do not compromise these things even though you are single. You are in a position where these things can be augmented and powerful because you have advantages that married people do not have. And if you're married and if you, you know, got a pile of kids and grandkids and all that, these lessons apply to you as well. You, you, you can't throw these things out also. But mark my words, we live in a culture where compromise and throwing out of integrity and finding your completeness in anyone else but Jesus is going to be more and more tempting, more and more... Uh, uh, it, it will be put in front of us more and more as we see the days advancing, all right? If you want to be used by God, you remember those three lessons. You find your completeness in Christ. You keep your integrity. You don't compromise. Bandit.